Support for Motley Fool Answers comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Home plays a big role in your life, and that's why Quicken Loans created Rocket Mortgage. It lets you apply simply and understand the entire mortgage process fully, so you can be confident that you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com fool. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined as always by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. Always a pleasure, Allison. Well, it's an especially special pleasure today because it's an all-mailbag episode, and joining us is special guest Ross Anderson from Motley Fool Wealth Management. Thank you, guys. Appreciate you having me. And of course, as always, it's a sister company, The Motley Fool, that you work at. It and is. you are you are a financial planner, and you have some initials after your name and all that stuff. So that's why you're you have the credentials to be here. Correct. So, well, something like that. But really, just that you guys asked me. But, but yes, I, I am a certified financial planner, as is as is bro. It's true. <laughs> Guilty as charged. All right. Well, today we're going to be answering your questions about buying versus leasing a car, options for investing in privately held companies, transferring Coverdell accounts, and lots of four hundred one k stuff. All that and more on this week's episode of Molly Full Answers. Let's just get into it, shall we? Let's do it. Our first question comes from Twitter. And of course, if you are on Twitter, you can follow us at Answers Podcast. Um, you can also follow Bro and myself. Ross, are you on the on the Twitters? Not really. I, I have one, but I don't really do it. All right, so don't follow him. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Mine, quest- mine's not interesting. There you go. That's that's all the advertising they needed to stay away. So the first question comes from Lauren. Lauren writes, if you're already meeting the max on your 401k, can you max out an IRA or Roth that isn't through your company too? Yes, Lauren, you can always max out an IRA regardless of how much you contribute to your 401k. However, your 401k can affect the type of IRA you choose. So basically there is the deductible traditional IRA, the non-deductible traditional IRA, and the Roth IRA. Whether you can deduct contributions to a traditional depends on whether you're covered by a plan at work or if you're married or your spouses. Even if you're not participating, it just depends on whether you're covered. If you're covered and you make over a certain amount of money, if you have a higher modified adjusted gross income, you can't deduct the contribution. Now for the Roth, the Roth the 401k, whether you have a 401k at work or not, doesn't affect whether you can contribute to a Roth. But the Roth also has limits based on your modified adjusted gross income. Now, what if you are close to those limits? What's one way to lower your modified adjusted gross income? Contribute to your traditional 401k. So, in that way, there is a bit of an interaction. So, if you're close to that limit, put more in your traditional 401k, and you might then be able to contribute either to the Roth or a deductible traditional IRA. But the answer to your question is, you can always contribute to an IRA, regardless of what's going on with your 401k. It just depends on the type you can contribute to. The one thing that I would add for Lauren is not to ignore uh, just regular taxable brokerage account. Sometimes uh, I think we get so focused on trying to find these fun pathways into IRAs that you forget that you can just buy stocks and, and invest directly uh, in, a, in a taxable account. Um, that word taxable tends to scare people because it sounds like I'm going to pay a lot of taxes, but really you get to decide when you buy and sell things, so you get to decide when the taxes are being paid. So right. If you buy a stock that doesn't pay a dividend and you hold on to it for 20 years, exactly. you don't pay any taxes until exactly. you sell it, and then you pay it at capital gains rates, which at least according to current law, are lower than ordinary income rates. Exactly. All right. Next question is from Austin. Oh, Austin has two questions. I recently moved to a new company and had a decent-sized 401k with my last company. What are the pros and cons of consolidating that 401k with the one at my new company? 
So you've got a couple options with an old 401k, and and uh, certainly good for you for thinking about it. Uh, if you roll it into your new 401k, the main pro to doing that is that you keep the ERISA protection. So 401ks are are under uh, a law called ERISA. It's a Department of Labor law. Um, it offers you some additional benefits if there was ever a bankruptcy, which we certainly hope there won't be. Um, but but that's kind of the benefit to ERISA. Your downside on 401ks is normally limited investment choices, uh, depending on the size of the company and how much purchasing power they have at the plan level. You can have costs that are a little higher. Uh, Your other choice really is to roll that into an IRA. Um, normally, that opens up your investment choices. A lot of the folks that we work with at, at uh, Motley Fool Wealth Management are moving 401ks into IRAs. Um, you know, that, that's really a lot of the transaction that we see, which would give you a lot more flexibility on how you invest moving forward. All right. Next question is: I have a Roth IRA in another account, but I'm wondering if there is some rule about when to stop contributing to a Roth and start contributing to a traditional IRA. I'm 29, and last year my wife and I jointly fell into the 25% tax bracket. Yeah. So I think this is a tougher question because uh, to answer this accurately, you have to uh, make a couple different predictions. Um, if you knew what your tax rate was going to be in the future versus what it is today, you could very accurately figure out which one is the the best bucket. But tax rates move, um, and then the other thing that's going to change a lot over time is is your personal income. Uh, so at 29, most of the time you're still in an accelerating income phase. Um, really, and uh, Social Security data says that income accelerates until kind of mid to to late 40s in in many cases. So uh, I would expect that you're still in a lower tax bracket today than you will be over the next. Let's call it 15 to 20 years, um, which would have me show a little bit of preference towards the Roth, at least currently. Um, just thinking that your income is going to go up, and you'll you'll appreciate the deduction for for pre-tax contributions later down the line. Yeah, the only other thing I'd say is that if there's any chance that you'll want the money before retirement age, 59 and a half, the Roth offers more flexibility. But I'm always hesitant to say that because ideally you should just leave it alone until you retire. Correct. All right. Next question comes from Jerry. For many years, I've been consistently contributing to Coverdell accounts for each of my kids. The good news is that all three accounts have made money. However, the fact that the holdings in the accounts are not identical has led to three accounts with wildly different values. I understand that money left over in a Coverdell can be reassigned to another family member. My question is, can that transfer happen before one has finished or started withdrawing on it? Good question, Jerry, and good for you for saving for college. Just so we all know, the Coverdell is an education account. It could be used if used for qualified higher education expenses or elementary and secondary school expenses. The money comes out tax-free, so it's a great account to cover those expenses. Also, unlike the 529 account, you can buy individual stocks, so they tend to be more attractive to the typical Motley Fool listener or reader. That said, the contribution limits are pretty low, just $2,000. But certainly something to consider for some of that money. The good news, Jerry, is you can move the money between the accounts of relatives, like siblings or spouses, um, at any point, as long as the person receiving the money is not yet 30 years old. So if you want to kind of equal out the accounts now, you can do that. There are two ways to do it. Technically, one is a rollover, one is a transfer. Go with the transfer, because you can do unlimited transfers. You can only do one rollover a year. But you can start doing that now if you want to do that. Right. So with a five two nine though, there's no age limit on getting those benefits, right? But with a Coverdell, it has to be younger than thirty. Well, so, yes. Is that in fact, correct? Am I understanding you correctly? Yes. In fact, you have to contribute like normally open and contribute account before you're eighteen, I think it is, and you have to use the money by age thirty. 
Sounds ageist. Yes, but for, for the transferring part, you can do that to someone who is not yet 30. Um, the 529 doesn't have the age limits, much higher contribution limits, and the good news is you can do both, actually, if you can save that much for college. Next question comes from Matt. Matt writes, I'm getting married in March of 2018. Oh, congratulations. While I have no real room for other expenses, my car's AC unit broke down. Just my luck. It will cost $1,000 to fix. Instead of getting it fixed, I'm looking for a new car. The trade-in value of my car is about $8,500. I have a deal in place where I put $4,500 of that down on the lease of a new car. I then get $4,000 cash back. My monthly payments would be $195 a month. I'm thinking of taking this deal due to the fact that I'm getting $4,000 cash back, which I could use toward my wedding. I'm also thinking of investing a portion of this cash in some stocks, probably about $1,000. However, I'm worried about leasing versus buying. Help! Is leasing a dumb idea? A lot going on in that question, Ross. There's a lot of moving parts. Uh, I actually like that there's a lot of moving parts, because I think that's what's making this a harder decision for Matt. Um, so, if we isolate his actual questions, let, let's take a look at them first. because. Um, the the first one let's look at is the car and and it never is fun to have a a thousand dollar unexpected expense um, but it certainly does happen uh, so on the car alone what you're talking about doing is taking an asset of yours that has about eighty five hundred dollars of value you're going to give half of that away or a little little more than half of that away as a down payment and then you're going to take on a, a payment of $195 a month, which I'm assuming is like a 36-month lease. So you're going to put out another $7,000 of cash on driving your vehicle. Um, and it sounds like you're doing that to get over a relatively short-term fix. So, so you know, five months of that payment is the same $1,000 that you're facing on the air conditioner right now. Um, so, so to me, that feels like you're you're robbing Peter to pay Paul a little bit in this case, um, and, and I, it it kind of scares me. Uh, the other component of that, though, is just general: is leasing a bad idea? And I don't think that it is because a car is a depreciating asset. Uh, you're kind of treating it like an expense, um, and you're just renting it for for a longer period of time. So, in general, I don't think leasing is a dumb idea. Uh, but I think with with this situation, Matt, the uh, the short term pain that you're looking at um, getting over that this way, I think, is going to lead you to a lot longer of a cash flow drain. And it sounds like dealing with the cash flow situation and and getting yourself to a spot where you can put together an emergency fund and and absorb. Uh, that $1,000 fix or, or the future things like that that come up is, is going to be most important. Um, so I would try and look for some other places to skimp and, and not give away the $8,500 asset that you have um, and, and try and get the car fixed. Yeah, it sounds like basically he's just pressed for cash. Mm-hmm. Like he's got this wedding coming up and to put a $1,000 repair in the car as opposed to doing this other thing where he gets some money back. But yeah. it's, a, it's a short-term fix. If you exactly. can find some other way to cover those costs, that's his better bet. E- even if he invests a thousand dollars of it, so you're you're taking an asset now of eighty five hundred, you're going to spend all of that except for a thousand bucks. You know, a thousand dollars invested is a great thing, but it's not going to make back the money uh, that that you have today in value very quickly. Okay, our next question comes from Francis. 
My question is in regard to market corrections. I remember Bro mentioned that on average we see corrections of X percent every X years. What were those percentages again? 10%? 20%? Something like that? I'm a long-term investor, and I mostly buy index ETFs. The reason I ask is that I'd like to take those opportunities to add on to my positions as they come. I'm thinking of coding up a simple Python script that would email me if I see any dips of X percent below recent highs on any of the stocks ETFs on my watch list. Well, first of all, let me give out some of the stats, and who knows which stats you listen to, because I use these <laughs> stats all the time. But I'll pull some from our good friend Morgan Housel, who's been on some recent episodes, and uh, he looked at the Dow Jones Industrial Average from 1928 to 2013 and found out that you can expect a 10% decline about once a year, a 20% decline on average every four years, and then something more than 30% every 10 years. The problem is, it's not very consistent. In fact, we just got through a period on October 23rd that was the longest streak that the S&P 500 went through without even a 3% decline. So, in terms of you trying to create a program, which I think, by the way, is clever, I love the idea of it, but if you were trying to create a program where you were going to try to buy on the dip, that says to me that you're going to have cash on the side waiting for that dip. And that dip may not come once a year. It might take three years, and you're waiting for that 10% dip, but you've missed out on like a 20% run-up. So, I don't think that's generally a good idea. I think if you've got the money and you don't need it in the next three to five years, just invest it. Yeah, because you, you'd probably have been accumulating cash since February of 2016 at this point. Yeah, if you're waiting for a dip, right? I mean, yeah. it, you, you've missed out on a lot of gains waiting for that. Yeah. Um, our, our president at Motley Fool Wealth Management, Nick Crow, says he thinks a lot more money has been lost waiting for corrections than actually in them. Uh, so I, I would generally uh, just try and get invested and hang on. Yep. Support for Motley Fool Answers comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Chances are you're confident when it comes to your work, your hobbies, and your life. Rocket Mortgage gives you that same level of confidence when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com. Equal housing lender licensed in all 50 states, NMLS, consumeraccess.org, number 3030. The next question comes from PT. I'm a 30-year-old investor, and I contribute to an IRA and a retirement plan at work. Because of a life crisis incident, I have 14000 in credit card debt. Should I reduce the contributions to my retirement accounts in order to pay down the debt? I should add, I've been savvy about swirling around the credit card debt, keeping APR pretty low. All right, PT. I think that, uh, first of all, good job trying to keep that APR pretty low. Pretty low is always kind of relative. On credit cards, it could be anywhere from Let's call it six, seven percent to to thirteen, fourteen uh, would still be kind of in the low range. Um, I, I think I would reduce your your contributions in order to do that. I wouldn't give up a match because if you're getting like a fifty percent match on your four hundred one k contribution, yeah, I agree. Uh, it's unlikely that you're you're paying more than fifty percent in terms of uh, the the interest on your on your debt there. But I, I think getting through that that period and then going back to your full contribution is important. Um, so I would see you reduce it. To, to a level that you're not giving up the match, at least in the short term. And I hope whatever the life crisis incident was has resolved itself and everything's going well. Correct. All right, next question comes from Tony. 
I'm in my late 50s and have lived most of my working life as a W-2 employee. As I begin to think about retirement, I was wondering how the government would take their cut. How do you go about paying taxes on the distribution from an IRA? Do you pay it all the following April, or does the IRS want their money quarterly? And what about the portion of Social Security that is taxable? Do they take it out of the money they send you, or are you left to pay it with your tax return? This is one of those uh, things that you have to get used to once you go from working to being a retiree. Because if you're working, and by W-2 employee, he means he's working for somebody else, you're used to the taxes being taken out of your paycheck, and then you just hope it all squares up on April 15th the following year. As a retiree, you are now responsible for paying your taxes quarterly. And if you don't pay enough, you'll have to pay a penalty once you file your taxes come the following April. So, it's a little different depending on how you do it. So, with a traditional IRA, the custodian is required to withhold 10% and send it to the government. Now, you can tell the custodian, I want more held out or I want nothing withheld, but they're going to take that 10%. Social Security, they won't automatically keep anything, but then you can ask them to, fit, to withhold a certain amount. But it's only certain percentages, so you can only request 7, 10, 15, or 25%, and it can't be like a dollar amount. But that's how they do it with Social Security. Um, and if you are selling stuff in like just your regular taxable account and having re- getting dividends and interest and capital gains, those aren't withhold withheld. Your, so you have to do sort of that calculating on your own. So it is something you have to get used to as a retiree. And I definitely think for the first couple of years of retirement, if you're not used to doing quarterly taxes, to get the help of an accountant just to get you set up. Yeah, definitely. Um, you can have a tendency not to want to take more out of the IRAs because you get the full amount and not do the withholding if, if, if you can, or do the lowest amount of withholding. Um, I, I think that's a mistake. I would try and withhold directly on the withdrawals so that you're not getting uh, a huge cash flow crunch later that you weren't expecting. All right, next question comes from Ben. I'm 24 years old and have decided to make a career change to financial planning. My question is, in the 12 months before I make the switch, what can I do to set myself up for success in my new career? Three things I'm already doing. One, reading lots of books on investing, personal finance, sales, and marketing. Two, starting a blog that delivers financial advice to a niche. Do you say niche or niche? I say niche. Niche just sounds so pretentious, but you go right ahead. You do. You be you. Starting a blog that delivers financial advice to the exact people I would like to serve, which are people in it advertising. Is that a niche? <laughs> or is, or <laughs> or is, is it, it a niche? niche? <laughs> and finally, the smartest thing Ben is doing, listening to podcasts like Motley Fool Answers. What else can he do to get ahead of the game? So, the it, it really depends on how he's going to enter the business. And, and uh, part of Ben's note kind of talks about Wanting to enter a training program as an in, at an independent broker dealer, which is great. Uh, you know, if you're going directly into production, meaning you're going to go try and find clients and and help them with their investments directly, the number one thing that you need to do to be successful is figure out where those clients are going to come from. Um, so the sales and marketing books are going to help you a lot. Um, the reality is that you can't help anybody until somebody's willing to to accept that help. Um, and, and so, that that's really the thing that I think a lot of folks miss when they're getting into financial advising, is that they are passionate about investing, they're passionate about the the kind of technician side of, of what we do, but 
um, not prepared to go find their own clients. So whether that's your natural market, uh, folks that you know, or if you're just going to find some other way of generating those folks to talk to, um, if you've been moving cities and things like that, that may be a little bit of a challenge. So so being social, getting out in the in the community, uh, making sure you've got folks to talk to. The other way to get in, of course, is to go join an existing practice, work with somebody that needs some assisting on whether it's development of the financial plans, data entry, some sort of a paraplanning role, uh, and then move up into more of a production capacity. Um, that's not necessarily as, as fast of a path in terms of the, the income potential, um, but those would be the things I'm really thinking about there. What yeah. was your path? Uh, I went straight into production. Uh, I joined the industry in 2008, and it was horrible. Yeah. Oh, that's got a lot of angry <laughs> calls. Huh? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, it wasn't even angry calls. I didn't have anybody that was angry with me. I didn't have any clients uh, yet. Oh, okay. Uh, I was just getting kicked in the teeth. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I was like 22, fresh out of college, just as dumb as I looked. And I was like, I'd like to help you in the middle of this major market correction. They were like, what could given you know? My, given my vast experience. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, so the, the folks uh, in many cases told me no thanks, and they were probably correct at the time. <laughs> oh, and then what happened? Uh, so I, I, I did almost exactly what I just described. I ended up joining a team uh, as kind of more of a paraplanner, developing somebody else's financial plans, working with an established practice, uh, and then kind of worked back up on onto uh, being on my own two feet. As mentioned in a previous podcast, when I talked about my story, I did the exact same thing, and that's certainly how I would recommend that most people get into the industry. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, you you can get too comfortable in that role. I think um, you know, if you ultimately want to be a producer, one day you're going to have to go do it. Um, you're going to have to go ask for the business. You're going to get you're going to hear a lot of no's. You're going to hear more no's than yeses. Um, but but yeah, so so you but but having the confidence in your own ability to help people is important. I think that's what you gather from from being in that uh, assisting role. The next question comes from Jason on Twitter. Jason writes, Is it foolish to mentally ignore any savings and only think my investment dividends are the only money I have to live on? So, whenever you use the word foolish around here, <laughs> I'm not sure if you mean, is it bad or is it good? It, it needs an uppercase F. Um, that's right. And this is a lowercase one. I assume, Jason, what you're asking is, uh, if you are retired, is it fine to just live off the interest and dividends and not touch the principal? And I would say, if you can do that, more power to you. I mean, the S&P 500, the yield is now 1.9%. If you focus on some higher yielding stocks, maybe some bond funds, you could maybe get three, maybe three and a half from a portfolio. If you can live off that, great. But most uh, retirement plans assume that you will sell some of your assets gradually throughout your retirement. I mean, ideally, it's not too much more than the income you get, one, two percent or so, but hopefully the growth of those will compensate for it. Um, but certainly people, particularly people who want to leave a legacy, they want to leave a large inheritance for their kids or maybe to charities, those folks tend to focus on just getting the income from the portfolio and leave the principal alone. So I, I want to throw a stat out for, for this because I think this is interesting. Um, generally, four percent is kind of considered a safe withdrawal rate. And if you were withdrawing four percent of your portfolio over a thirty-year uh, retirement, only ten percent of the time do you end up with less money than you started. Than you start with, yeah. Um, and, and that's a really powerful statistic because that means that if you're withdrawing three percent and just living off the dividend yield, for example, uh, you're materially underspending what you could. You're probably going to end up with a a pretty large account balance, so it would be very safe to do that. Uh, but it means that you're probably living a little bit more conservatively than you need to. 
Yeah, the, the, the old 4% safe withdrawal rate really is a worst case scenario. Yeah. So historically, you could withdraw more. Now, the counterpoint to that today is interest rates are low, dividend yields are low, valuations are high. So maybe 3 or 4% actually makes more sense. But certainly historically, people could have spent more than 4% and been fine. Yeah, I mean the, the the math I get into on this is, uh, let's say just for example, we're we're using a million dollar portfolio, and you're going to take four percent out of it, so uh, forty thousand dollars a year. If we were going to take five years of that upfront and just set it aside, um, so we're going to take two hundred and uh, I can't do basic math now. Two hundred thousand. Two hundred thousand dollars out of that portfolio. What is the rest? What does the eight hundred have to do to get back to a million after five years? And it's like. Five and a half percent. It's a pretty low return threshold that, that you should be able to achieve. So even if you've removed all of the risk on on the money that you need in the first five years, it's not that hard to make it back up. All right, and our last question comes from Yuri. I would like to invest in or be exposed to a company called Impossible Foods. And when I first got this email, I was like, he's just making this up. Is this a pretend company? But no, it's, it's a real a, company. It's a real company. And they make Impossible Foods. Did you look them up too? Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, am I remembering correctly that they make pro- like veg- like protein? They, make they develop meat. a new generation of meats and cheeses made entirely from plants. For example, the Impossible Burger. Made completely from pants. I, I got to be honest, I'm not a believer yet. <laughs> they don't. I think this is a company that uses like red beet juice so that there's so the, the hamburger is actually juicy. I mean, oh, I, really? I appreciate the effort, but I'll stick with the burger. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm a, I, I was raised somewhat vegetarian, and I'm always of the mind of like, eat vegetarian food because it's delicious. Like, black bean burgers can be delicious. You don't have to like, kid yourself and be like, oh, this is exactly like eating a cheeseburger. It's never going to be exactly like eating a cheeseburger. So well, just learn to love vegetarian food, if you care. And if you don't care, who cares? Although there is also the economical, like economics argument about how wasteful it is to like raise a cow and then slaughter yeah, the cow that's one whatever. Of, that's one of the, the foundations of the company. Yeah. Yeah. They have definitely have an environmental concern. Just learn to love black bean burgers. That's all I'm saying. They're delicious. Why do you all hate progress? <laughs> I don't. And Yuri doesn't either because he wants to invest in this company. Sorry for the tangent there. Okay. Unfortunately, he continues, it's pri- it's a private company. It has 11 major investors including Google Ventures, Bill Gates, and UBS. Maybe you've heard of them. If I buy UBS stock, will I indirectly be exposed to Impossible Foods as well or is this just a drop in the sea of UBS's holdings? Are there any other options I do not see? Thanks. So, um, in his list, Google Ventures is in there, so he could certainly become an investor in Alphabet as well. Uh, that, that's another potential option there. Um, but, but to his answer, yes, it's sort of a, a drop in the sea for, for UBS. UBS, uh, their market cap right now is a little north of $64 billion. Um, Impossible Foods looks like they've raised about $300 million of all of their funding. Uh, so, even if UBS was all of that $300 million, and they're not, um, it would be like point zero 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 five percent of their balance sheet. Um, it, it's just exceptionally small. UBS is a monster-sized company, so um, the the outcome of Impossible Foods doing well or poorly uh, is not really going to move the needle for them, unfortunately. So um, maybe, maybe look for other VCs that have have done that type of investing um, and look at their portfolios and find another idea. Uh, whether it's you know KKR, Blackstone Group, anything like that, you could look at some other stocks and 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 maybe find an opportunity like there. But 
getting access to impossible foods is going to be tough. But can private can are there any options for investors who want to invest in private companies? Period. Like, you, do you just have to be a massively huge investor to invest in privately held companies? Most of the time, you have to meet uh, a few hurdles to get those types of opportunities. Whether you're a qualified investor, which is typically a million dollar portfolio, not including your home, or a qualified purchaser, which is like a five million dollar portfolio. Because um, when you're investing in illiquid companies, uh, they try and do a lot of things to protect you so that you're not losing that investment. Because they tend to be higher risk and um, making sure that the folks can actually absorb that risk. So no, not there's really. no good option it's, for it's, it's, no, Kickstarter. In it. You can always try Kickstarter. Yeah, go it's, fund me. <laughs> that's a bummer because there's all these fun small companies that you'd want to. And it and I assume he also wants to invest in this company because he's aligned with what they believe in. Totally, it is a bummer, and I, I have a lot of sympathy with with this question because that's true, and, we, and we've briefly mentioned it before, and that companies aren't coming to the public markets like they used to. They're instead going to private equity and staying private longer than they used to. So, it's a little harder to find these opportunities. Yeah. Well, maybe that'll change in the future. Hope so. Hope so. All right. Yeah, the, the scrutiny of public markets is tough for these small companies. I, I, think they, I think they've realized they get a little bit more flexibility if it's private money that's invested in them, and a little bit more leeway to burn through cash before they become profitable. Um, and the public market demands those profits pretty quick. Mm. All right. The public. What do they know? I know. Oh, that's it. Those are all the questions. Nice job, you guys. Ah. <sighs> <sighs> Deep breath. You, Ross, bringing stats and numbers <laughs> <I know>. and <laughs> math. We're all about feelings here. But how does it make you feel? Uh, all right. Yeah. So that's the show. I have a few postcards to shout out. So we've got uh, Tony, who sent a postcard from Scotland, which is beautiful. Fifty billion cent sent a vertigo-inducing postcard from New York City. It's 3D. I, I can't even look at it from here. A, I can't look at it. It, it makes me it's literally cool, makes me though. nauseous. Yeah, it is cool. Uh, it's lenticular. Mark sent a card from the Trans Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. What? As a tourist, not a guest. <laughs> At the Lunatic Asylum. Is he suggesting anything for us? Like, you guys should come here. (laughs) Come check it out. Uh, Finally, Renee and Brian, Brian, definitely not Steven, sent a card from Croatia. Uh, So, this is awesome. Hey, speaking of travel, the Southwicks are heading out to Malta. So, if any of our listeners have any Malta travel advice, I will take it. Um, And I'll also take advice on what apps your five-year-old kid loves right now. Because... It's a long flight. Long flight to Malta. So, all right, Ross, thank you for joining us on the show today. We really appreciate it. Thank you guys so much for having me. You want to come back again? Of course. All right. The show is edited Maltesingly by Rick Engdahl. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. <laughs>